Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 10 this evening as we continue our study through Deuteronomy together. As we pick up here in the 10th chapter, Moses was just recounting this incident from Israel's history, of course, when they had one of their great failures of the golden calf incident there where uh, the people being impatient uh, on God's timing, Moses not coming down from the mountain as quickly as they would have liked to and not being able to wait upon God's timetable and their lack of ability to believe and to trust the Lord, they then fell prey to that temptation and weakness of their flesh where they created the golden calf and that whole incident uh, unfolded and that great sin against the Lord that ultimately uh, provoked the wrath of God, the righteous uh, wrath of God in such a way where he was about to uh, really wipe out the people and offered the opportunity to begin afresh uh, with Moses, a new generation of people whereby Moses then seeming the prompting of God, God looking for a way to show mercy, senses the need like Christ to be a mediator. He begins to stand in the gap and to intercede and to pray for the people over a 40-day time period. He was prostrating himself before the Lord and asking that God's glory be preserved uh, in regards to his people and his work among them. Uh, and as Moses is describing this account, we then read in chapter 10, verse 1, continuing on, at that time, with that backdrop, again, after this great failure in sin, as the people were breaking the covenant of God and Moses was interceding for them for God to have mercy that his judgment would be turned away. It's at that time it says, the Lord said to me, Moses says, hew for yourselves two tablets of stone like the first. And come up to me on the mountain and make yourself an ark of wood. Of course, another reference to what we know as the Ark of the Covenant from our prior studies together through Exodus and Leviticus. And God says, verse 2 to Moses, And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Remember when he came down the mountain and he tossed the tablets of stone onto the ground symbolically as they broke before the people demonstrating how they were breaking the commands of God. So he says, I'm going to write the same words that were on the first tablets which you broke and you shall then put that set inside the ark which they are uh, we're told historically three of these things the, the tablets of stone a golden jar of manna and Aaron's budded staff those three things the Bible tells us ultimately were kept and sort of preserved inside of the ark of the covenant but you know very interesting events unfolding here again I think chapter 10 verse 1 that phrase there at that time again in, important to understand what's that referring to at the time period after an incredible failure, after grievous sin, at a time when Moses is interceding for God's uh, hand, in a sense, to become involved in mercy, what we see happening here in verse 1 and 2 is the Lord says, create two new tablets of stone, come up the mountain, and I will again rewrite those same commandments on those two tablets of stone, which you will then bring back down to the people and will preserve in the Ark of the Covenant. Really what you have God doing here already is graciously responding. This is the grace of God here because really you could say God is renewing the covenant with his people which they just broke. God could have said, you know what? You break my word, 
That's it, I'm done with you. No more commandments for you. Moses, I blessed them initially. I gave them that set of commandments, but they broke them. That was the opportunity. Opportunity lost, uh, done and doing away with them. But instead, we see God, as he says, get two new tablets, start afresh. I'll write the same words on those tablets that they already broke. And here, basically, what you have God doing as an act of his grace and of his mercy God is renewing the covenant which the people themselves have just broke. And what a wonderful thing that though we are a people so often who transgress against the Lord, uh, you know, we, we make commitments to the Lord and we break those commitments. We don't keep our covenants and promises with God and the professions that we make often of our faith. But yet how wonderful that we serve a God that is a covenant keeping God. And that he is a God who is committed to us and committed to his covenant to us as his people way more than we ever keep covenants and commitments with him. That he is the committed one because here God says, yes, you broke the commitment, but I'm my love and grace. I'm going to renew it. I'm going to renew the covenant with you. And of course, how much better is it for us in the new covenant that we have through Jesus Christ? This was the old covenant under the Mosaic law. How much more wonderful the grace of God that we have available to us through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the ultimate Passover lamb sacrifice for the sin of the world to take away sin. And yet take note here as well, as I say that God's renewing the covenant, also take note in verse 1 and 2 that God clearly is indicating to Moses and to the people of God, though they've broken my word and they haven't been able to keep my word, I'm not going to alter the standard of my word. Because notice God says here in verse 1 and 2 that I'm going to write, he says, on the tablets, the same words that were on the first tablets. Now, again, the people probably were glad to say, look, well, Lord, I mean, come on, those commands of your word, they were a little unrealistic. I mean, that, that was a little hard to keep. And, and so could you at least tone it down a little bit? I mean, could you lower the standard a little bit? So meet us where we're at. I mean, we, we have these propensities to do what's wrong. And, and, but yet notice God still holds the same standard. The word of God was not altered. God said, my word, the Bible says, is eternal. It's settled in the heavens forever. And just because we don't keep the word of God does not mean that God ever is going to alter his word. He's never going to change his word or alter his word to accommodate my sinful behavior. He's never going to accommodate the sins of a current generation that wants to say, well, I mean, that's Victorian. That was then. But, but we want to live in a new way now in, in, in modern. Listen, God is never going to alter the Ten Commandments. God's never going to alter any part of his word. His word stands forever and he will not alter it to accommodate the sinful desires and propensities of an individual, of a family, of a nation, of a congregation. His word is true and it's righteous and we may not keep it, but the standard is still the same. And we need to remember that, that God is never going to bend to our desires and accommodate our, if you would, sinful tendencies here. I think it's very interesting that God says, no alteration, Moses. You're going to write my word and give my word to the people again, but let them know just because they broke it uh, does not mean that I'm going to, in a sense, make it different for them or accommodate. But instead, my word will remain and they need to learn to observe it and to honor it. So verse three says, so I made an ark of acacia wood. Again, the reference to the ark of the covenant. I hewed out the two tablets of stone, Moses says, just like the first. 
And I went up on the mountain, having the two tablets in my hand. And verse 4, he wrote on the tablets according to the first writing, the Ten Commandments, which the Lord had spoken to you in the mountain from the midst of the fire in the day the assembly the Lord gave them to me. The idea is initially the first time. So again, God rewrites these things. And again, take notice verse 4 because I think this is just a great reminder. Moses says regarding those Ten Commandments and the Word of God, he says, He, God, God wrote on the tablets according to the first writing the Ten Commandments which the Lord had spoken. Again, this, this wasn't Moses writing this. This was God writing and God speaking his word. And I think it's a good reminder that we realize that this book that we hold, both Old Testament and New Testament, the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3 that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's God-breathed. This is God's word. God may use a human instrument to record what he wanted written, whether it was Paul the apostle or Isaiah the prophet or whether it was John the apostle or Luke's gospel. But the reality is there is one common author that runs all throughout this book. And that author is God. Because this is what God wrote. This is what God spoke. And again, I just love how it's so clearly stated for us here. Moses says that he wants to be clear. Look, I'm bringing these commands to you, but these aren't my ideas. These aren't things I dreamed up in my human concept of what religious life should be like. He says, no, these are the very words that God wrote in which God spoke. And thus is all of our Bible that we have, both Old Testament and New Testament as well. Verse 5, Moses says, After I received the new tablets, he says, Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets, obediently as God told him to, into the ark which I had made, and they are there just as the Lord commanded me. Again, those three different things, the two tablets of stone, the budded staff of Aaron, as well as that golden jar of manna that God since provided for the people. Those three things, the Bible says, ended up inside the ark, as Moses refers to here. Now, verse 6 through 9, it's sort of this parenthetical insertion. Quite honestly, I'm not 100% certain exactly why this parenthetically gets inserted here. It almost seems that it, it goes off topic here as it just records parenthetically this pause in the account to record some of the journeyings and experiences of Israel again. It says, Now the children of Israel journeyed from the wells of Beni Jaakon to Moserah where Aaron died and where he was buried. And then Eliezer, his son, ministered as priest in his stead. So Eliezer then assumed the role of high priest and it says, from there they then journeyed to uh, Gugadah, and from Gugadah to Jabatha, a land of rivers of water. And at that time, verse 8, the Lord separated the tribe of Levi. We've talked about this before. Their responsibility was to bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless in his name to this day. And therefore, Levi has no portion nor inheritance with his brethren. The idea is no land inheritance. Remember again, they didn't get a lot of territory in the land of Canaan. They would receive cities, small portions and tracts of land, just so they could experience everyday life like other people they ministered to. But uh, they were to be predominantly preoccupied in the work of the Lord. They were the tribe that was set apart 
to be ministers. They were the tribe from which the priesthood came as well. Remember the three different sons of Levi, the Gershonites, the Merorites, the Kohathites, and they each had different responsibilities to help in the furnishings of the ark, bearing the different implements as they traveled and moved around, setting the ark, uh, I mean, excuse me, setting the, the tabernacle up and down. And Moses says here, because of that, uh, they didn't receive a portion of the inheritance with their brethren because the Lord is their inheritance just as the Lord your God promised him. So again, they didn't receive a land inheritance. The Lord was their inheritance. And what's meant by that is that God himself would supply their needs. God himself would provide for them and out of the tithes and the offerings and sacrifices that were given to the Lord, as we've seen already, God prescribed a portion of that was then given to supply the Levitical people, that tribe, so that they could give themselves fully to the service and the works of the Lord uh, on God's people's behalf. Now, I you know, I just want to say here, verse 8, very interesting as it describes how the Lord, again, calls them to serve. It says the Lord separated them to bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord. What a beautiful picture here of the call of God to serve him being separated, set apart by the Lord. There was something that they were to bear. There was a responsibility and their role was notice to stand before the Lord to minister and to bless in his name. Again, a lot of times people think in ministry they stand before people. And that's what most people who want to do ministry enjoy. They like to stand before people because it feeds their ego. And, and there's something in our flesh that allows us to, in a sense, you know, have almost a distorted perspective where what we really enjoy is, is the attention that we have this role or this responsibility or we stand in some way before people. And that's a very unhealthy way to have an approach towards ministry, whether it's that we just enjoy the, you know, the, the psychological uh, you know, benefit of that, that it makes us feel good, it strokes our sinful ego in some way, or whether it's that we think we're standing before the people in the sense that we want to get the approval of people or the acceptance of people. So, so how did I do? You know, were you pleased with it? You know, was it, a, was it a, something that you were pleased with? And all of a sudden we get this wrong perspective when the reality is, is God says, no, you stand before me. You stand before me when you minister. And you should be looking for my approval. And you should be looking to do things in a way whereby I'm well pleased. Like the, uh, the scriptures say, let the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. And that that should be our heart's desire because when we're doing that and our heart is in the right place, notice verse 8 as well, they were called, look, says to bless in his name. I like that. You stand before the Lord and the role of ministry, however God uses you in whatever capacity, is that you just seek to bless people in his name. What a great aspiration. Lord, use my life. Let me serve in your presence, but let me serve in a way where I can bless people in your name. Now, again, the reason these little parenthetical statements are given to us here, I don't 100% know why. It's very likely the main reason this is here is a brief record to indicate that Aaron continued to live on for a period of time after this whole incident with the golden calf and later died down the road in the midst of these journeys and then Eliezer assumed his role and that the line of the Levites continued on in their ministry because remember when the whole golden calf incident happened and we just even saw this last week referenced there not only was God upset with the people but chapter 9 verse 20 said the Lord was very angry with Aaron and would have destroyed him 
So perhaps this is just another way God is saying, and you know what, in, in, in relation to Moses' intercession and standing in the gap as a mediator, as a picture of Christ, I also spared Aaron. And I didn't destroy Aaron. I had mercy upon him and he continued to live and he continued to have opportunity to minister and so did the people from the tribe that he was a part of though that golden calf incident took place. So chapter 10, it seems, they, excuse me, verse 10 picks up with sort of the account. He says, as at the first time, Moses says, I stayed in the mountain 40 days and 40 nights and the Lord also heard me at that time as he was praying. And the Lord chose, Moses said, not to destroy you. Again, as we talked about last week from Ezekiel 22 about standing in the gap as someone who's in intercessory prayer and how God searches for someone to do that and how God wanted to have mercy upon his people. God didn't want to judge his people. He was looking for a reason to not have to judge them though they righteously deserved it and he used Moses to be prompted by the spirit to stand in the gap and it gave God a reason to not destroy them. It gave God a reason to turn away his judgment. So he says, the Lord heard me as I stood in the gap and prayed as a mediator and he chose not to destroy you. Verse 11, and then the Lord said to me, arise, begin your journey before the people that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. So, Again, an incredible testament to the grace of God and to God's merciful response to that prayer of intercession. Notice, as a result of what happened, the Lord did not destroy them, and that would be incredible if that's all it was, but God also didn't destroy his plan for them because Moses says, he chose not to destroy you, and then he said to me, Moses, lead the people into the land and bring them into what I promised them. So not only did God not pour out his judgment and punishment upon them, but God didn't forsake his plan for them either. He didn't say, you know what, look, I'm not going to destroy you, but the whole plan about this promised land thing, we're done with that and forget about it. Instead, God mercifully in the midst of this shows his grace and he still takes them in and he still brings them into the inheritance of all the good purposes and plans he had for them. I mean, that's, that's really great encouragement because sometimes we do some really dumb things in life and we make some major mistakes and, and, and how wonderful to know the Bible says of Israel in the book of Romans that the gifts and call of God are irrevocable. Listen, we may at times suffer some of the consequences of our mistakes and sins, but how wonderful to know that we serve a God that is so merciful and that is so gracious that if our heart is right and we submit to the Lord and we're in a right place, that not only does God in some ways hold off the punishment that could have come, as grievous as it could have been, but God in his mercy still sometimes says, look, and I'll even still fulfill my purposes for you ultimately. Again, don't get me wrong. We may, be de we may delay the plan of God. We may cause, in a sense, ripples in the process, but to know that God, as he says in Jeremiah, says, look, I know the thoughts I think towards you. They're not of harm or of evil, but to give you a future and a hope. And God told Israel that at a time when they had really made some horrible mistakes. God said, yeah, there's going to be consequences, but ultimately God says, I see a future and a hope that I have for you down the road. And here, what an amazing thing at this time Moses is hearing at this point, at this low point, Moses begin the journey that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to give to them. Verse 12, he then says to the people, and now Israel, what does the Lord require of you? That's a great question. 
I think that's something we all should want to figure out at some point in our life. What does God require? What is it that God requires? I mean, that should be the question really that every one of us is interested in. What does God require of me? Lord, what do you want of me? What do you require? He says, what does the Lord require of you? He then answers his own question sort of rhetorically, but to fear the Lord your God, to have a healthy reverence for the authority of God, to not in a sense be trivial or casual, thinking that we can just transgress against God and there's there's no accountability for that, that we can just do it and blow it off as no big thing, but instead to, to fear crossing God, the idea is. You know, when you have a good father, I had a good father, when you have a healthy father-son relationship, you both fear and love your father. That's a good thing. That's how it should be. You should love him and at the same time, you should fear him that if you cross him, as much as he loves me, he'll kill me. And, you know, just, that's just kind of that concept there. Because he loves me, he'll kill me. And, and, and that's, a, that's a, a healthy thing. The idea there is, you know, is, Lord, I understand. You're a great and an awesome God. And I don't want to become casual and trivial and, and lose the fear of God that somehow I think that I can push the limits with God and, and he's going to just sort of wink an eye at it. That's an unhealthy thing. This is the Almighty God. This is a holy, righteous God. And so he says, what does God require of you? First thing out of the gate, he says, is that you fear the Lord your God, that you fear him for who he is, that there's a healthy fear inside of you, a reverence for what would happen if you dishonor and displease the Lord in your life and to walk in all his ways, to obediently walk out what he wants rather than our ways or the ways of the world and to love him, again, relational, to love the Lord your God, the Bible says, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. So, great insight there. God, what do you require? What do you want from me? Do you want sacrifices? Do you want money? Do you want the, Lord, what do you want from me? God says, fear me. I want you to have a healthy fear of God in your life. I want you to walk in my ways. I want you to love me. I want you to serve me with all your heart and your soul. And I want you to keep my word and honor my commandments. And, and look what he attaches to the end of it there in verse 13. He says, really all of this, it's for your good. It's for your good, God says. Again, notice that he wants our best. He, he wants a good life for us. So he says, as you do what I require, he says the benefit actually is going to be for you because you'll have a good life as a result of those things, loving God and following and serving him. Verse 14, it says, Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. So again, a declaration of how God possesses all things, that he's the creator of all things and that he controls and rules over all things. Again, heaven, the highest heavens, everything, notice, all the earth, it all belongs to the Lord. He is the possessor of all things, yet in contrast to that or connection to it, verse 15, he says, the Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them and he chose their descendants after them and you above all the peoples as it is this day. So Moses is saying, look, here's God. Everything belongs to him. Everything in heaven and in earth and everything that is on the earth and every person that is on the earth, God has everything he needs. And he says, yet 
the special privilege you are as a people. He says, but yet the Lord delighted only in you in this way. And he chose you. He chose Israel. And the idea there is that they should recognize this incredible privilege. That this awesome, incredible God who needs nothing and has everything and technically needs no one. He's the all-sufficient God. And yet he says, but yet he condescended and he chose you. He chose you. He chose you to be his people. He chose you to be one of his children. He chose Israel to be his special people and a chosen nation. And you know, what a special privilege it is when you realize who God is and yet that he actually selects certain individuals. And you know, Jesus said to us in his word, you didn't choose me, I chose you. The Bible says of believers that we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. You know, you ponder that. Ponder the reality of who God really is. That He is this God who the heaven and the highest heavens belong to Him, all the earth and everything that's in it. And yet He wanted you to be His son. He wanted you to be His daughter. He wanted to adopt you into His family. That He chose you and He pursued you and He made you His own. Boy, that's a, an incredible privileged position when you really take that and meditate on that and chew it over. He says, therefore, in light of this incredible privileged relationship, verse 16, the exhortation, therefore, He says, circumcise the foreskin, notice, of your heart, and be stiff-necked no longer. So Moses says, listen, in light of what God's done, respond to Him. He says, when you consider all that he's done for you, that should make you want to be yielded and submitted to him. He uses this imagery here of, of circumcision and Israel understood this very clearly because of the covenant of circumcision God had given to them as a people through Abraham. As God gave to Abraham this covenant mark that the nation of Israel as a sign of their covenant with God, Jehovah God, would circumcise their mere children. The idea was the cutting away of the flesh, that they were to be a people who didn't live after the flesh and the fleshly impulses and desires, but instead that they would be a people who were sensitive to and lived after the things of the Spirit and lived after God instead. And this mark on their body that they would put upon themselves was just a constant reminder <laughs> of that very reality, that they belonged to God. And, and in a sense, they were symbolically marking themselves by saying, we are not to be a people after the flesh. We are to be a people who live after the things of the Spirit and live after God. And so this significant mark they would put upon themselves, and they understood what that represented. And of course, what God was interested in necessarily was not the physical procedure. It wasn't the ritual. That was just a representation of what was supposed to have happened in their hearts. Paul addresses that in Romans chapter 2 where he ultimately says there, look, uh, someone is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but one who is a Jew inwardly. And he says it's not circumcision of the flesh, it's circumcision of the heart. And the ritual without the reality means nothing. And here Moses seems to understand this because he says here to a people who already circumcised themselves in the flesh... He says, circumcise the foreskin of your heart, your inner person, and be stiff-necked or stubborn no longer. Again, it's an exhortation to, in a sense, have a heart that was tender towards the thing of, things of God. He's saying here, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. The idea is, is removing what hinders. Take away whatever hinders relationship with God. Cut it out of your life. Again, circumcision was not a pleasant procedure. 
And so God is saying, look, it may not be pleasant, but sometimes you've got to cut out of yourself, cut out of your heart the things that are, are an encumbrance, the things that would hinder you from relationship with God or from living rightly towards God and living after the things of the Spirit rather than the impulses and the drives of the flesh and the sin nature. So God says here, circumcise your hearts. And notice, this was something that, that not someone did for them. They did for themselves. Circumcise your heart. Choose to do it yourself. Choose to cut out of your life those things that would hinder so that you wouldn't be stubborn and rebellious towards what God wants, but submitted and yielded instead. Verse 17, he says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome. You got any more adjectives there, Moses? <laughs> I mean, just take a walk with that for a little while if you, you wonder how big your God is. The Lord your God, God of gods, Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome. And this God, he says, here's one of the ways that he is so great and mighty and awesome. He shows no partiality. God's no respecter of persons. And that's one of the great attributes of God because people aren't like that. You know, we're respecter of persons. So often we're impressed by certain people more than we should be because of some title or position or who they are. And, and so we show partiality. We're overly impressed with some people. And sometimes we show partiality because, in a sense, you know, we, we maybe ignore or blow off someone else because we don't think that they're significant or we can't get anything out of a relationship with them. So we, we treat them differently than someone else. And, and he says, God doesn't do that. God shows partiality with no one. God's not impressed with anyone. In the same way, God sees no one as inferior to anyone else. He loves and treats all people equally. This is a part of how God's a great God, that he treats people fairly and equally in that way. He shows no partiality, and he doesn't take a bribe. And that's another great thing about God. You know, the problem with humanity so often is, you know, what's your price? And that's not always a money thing. You know, it's amazing. If, you know, if somebody thinks they, there's some advantage, okay, then I'll break the rules. If there's some advantage to get ahead, some angle, then, okay, I can be bribed to bend the rule here or break the rule there or cut a corner there. And, 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 you, and, and people can be bribed to do things because they have a price. And look, God, God has no price. And I'll tell you why. Because he paid the ultimate price in Jesus. And God paid a huge price. So listen, there's nothing anybody can do that's going to top that. And so many times the way people relate to God, it's almost that they think God can be bribed. Well, God, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to, I'll never do that again. Or I'm not going to stop smoking these cigarettes. If you please bless me or get me out of this jam or, you know, and, and we, we, we relate to God sometimes like we think he can be bribed. Like he's a cosmic genie or something. You know, we, if we just rub him the right way, then we'll get our wish or maybe our three wishes listen you can't bribe god god blesses because he's gracious we don't have to deserve it in fact it's almost an affront to god when we think we can bribe him and do something to somehow work an angle on god and and though we made that way work with people that won't work with god you can't bribe your way into heaven and you can't bribe your way into the blessings of god you simply recognize who God is and you realize that he's someone who can be manipulated though people many a times can. Verse 18, we see more of the greatness and awesomeness of God. Moses says, verse 18, he administers justice, fair treatment. The idea is just treatment for the fatherless and the widow 
and he loves the stranger. The idea is the foreigner, one who would be in a land, but not from that land as far as their race or their nation, giving him food and clothing. So he says another thing that's great and awesome about the Lord is he is a God who doesn't show partiality to anyone. He takes no bribe, but rather he helps the vulnerable. Notice he specifically points out there the fatherless, the widow. In that culture, if you were fatherless, in that culture, if you were a widow, that puts you at tremendous risk. Because typically the father, the husband, was in essence the source of provision for the home. That was how that culture operated. Men took very seriously their role and responsibility as a husband or a father that, that it is my responsibility to provide for my family. It is my responsibility to provide for my wife, for my children. And, and if someone somehow lost a father or lost a, sp a husband, that puts you in tremendous jeopardy in that day. So, you know, a, a young child or a, or a woman without a husband was in a very dangerous, vulnerable place in that culture. And so because of that, they were a very, in a sense, helpless individual as well as the stranger. Again, the foreigner, someone who's in the land but is from another land. Maybe they don't speak the language and they're not in touch with the cultural practices. These are all pictures of vulnerable, helpless individuals. And, and look, it says here th that God administers justice for them. God makes sure that they're treated fairly, that they get what they need. And in fact, it says giving him food and clothing, God is seeking to provide and to care for those who are not properly being cared for because of the vulnerable condition that they're in. He, he comes to their aid. Again, that, that heart of God giving food and clothing, a provider, a supplier. He says, verse 19, therefore to the Jews as his people, he says, therefore you love the stranger. For remember, God says, you were strangers in the land of Egypt. God says, you were once foreigners. You were once aliens in a sense. You were foreigners in another land in Egypt. So God says, you know what that's like. So have pity upon those who now find themselves in that condition. Don't have prejudice towards them. Have pity upon them. And, you know, I think we should remember that. I know we all may have different, you know, opinions and convictions in regards to things with, you know, you know, uh, you know those who are, are, are aliens or refugees and these kind of things. But listen. God says that there's still individuals who are at many times vulnerable and helpless and, and need compassion. And, and we need to remember that. Those, those are people still. Those are souls. Those are individuals. These aren't necessarily all individuals who you know, purposely chose to, to, to leave from where they were. Many of them were driven from where they were and are struggling. And so God says we should be a people like him who administers justice. Again, in a just way, wise way, but yet exercising compassion, loving the stranger, he says, the foreigner. Verse 20, you shall fear the Lord your God and serve him. And to him you shall hold fast and take oaths in his name. Verse 21, he says, he is your praise and he is your God who has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. One of the things he mentions, verse 22, your fathers went down to Egypt with just 70 persons and now Moses says, the Lord your God has made you as the stars of heaven in multitude. Again, God had already began fulfilling some of his promise to Abraham that when they were just a small little clan of people that now here they are, this massive nation, 
innumerable because God had blessed and multiplied and prospered them because of the great and awesome things he had done for them. Again, the idea here at the end of verse uh, chapter 10 here, he is your praise because he has done these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. Again, just reminding them. We saw it in chapter 9. It continues on in chapter 10, this whole concept. We saw in chapter 9 last week, God said, don't think because of your righteousness. Remember we saw that last week when you get into the land. Because of my righteousness, that's why it's going so good in the promised land and we're starting to get some traction and we're starting to get ahead. And God kept saying, don't get self-righteous. When things are going good, don't begin to get self-righteous. God's been trying to emphasize in these two chapters, no, listen, God said again and again, you are a rebellious people, a stiff-necked people, and it's been all the grace of God. It's been all the goodness of God and the grace of God who's done the great things that he's done for us. And this is the implication here in verse 21. Because it is all of grace, all the glory should go to him. This is why he says here, he is your praise. Don't sing your own praise. God help us. That's how we get into trouble. That's how we get in trouble as individuals. That's how we get in trouble as believers. We know, you know, b- before a man's fall, a man's heart is haughty. And when we begin to think somehow and sing our own praises, uh, that begins to be the first step towards a real slip up. So he says, look, it's all of grace, God's trying to say. So therefore, remember these great and awesome things and let him be your praise. Praise him for how he's worked in such wonderful ways that your eyes have seen. You've seen the great works that God's done in your life. And you know what they are. So praise him for it. Appreciate, render thanks, whether it's with your words or your prayers or times when we come together like this to worship him as well. Chapter 11, verse 1, he says, Therefore you shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his judgments, and his commandments always. So again, in light of the fact of what he just talked about there in chapter 10, as he's been saying from verse 14 now, how, how the Lord is great and awesome and all these great things about God and how awesome he is and the great works which their eyes had seen. He says, therefore, look, there's the response to it. Therefore, love the Lord. Again, love him because of who he is, responsive. We, we love him because he first loved us. It's a response, our love towards him. And notice how the Bible, again and again, from Old Testament to New Testament, shows that love and obedience are inseparable. Do you notice that there, verse 1? Take note. Love the Lord your God. Well, how do I love God? I want to love God. How do I love God? Well, he tells us there. Keep his charge. Keep his statutes, keep his judgments, keep his commandments always. Love is manifested by action. The Bible says in the New Testament that Jesus declared, if you love me, what? Obey me, keep my commandments. Jesus equated the two. Jesus said, I can really tell if you love me, not by how much you tell me you love me, not how much you tell other people you love me, not how much you pretend that you love me in front of other people. I can tell if you love me by whether or not you obey me. Because it's that action, it's that demonstration, because action and obedience is self-sacrifice, and, and it, it's, it's what happens. You know, you watch people fall in love. You watch young people fall in love, and guy begins to fall in love with a gal, and what does he do? He's always thinking of ways to demonstrate love towards her. He wants to do things to demonstrate to her that he loves her. 
And it's the same. The Bible says that love will be manifested in fruit. It will be demonstrated. That's why the Bible says in 1 John, let us not love in word and tongue, but in action and in truth. So again, how do I love God? Do you want to love God? Listen, well, I'm not a real emotional person. I'm not real sentimental, touchy-feely. Well, look, that's fine. I don't care if you cry or not. Obey the Bible. You obey the Bible, you're demonstrating that you love God. You obey His Word and, and demonstrate that you want to show your care for Him by simply being obedient to Him. So love the Lord by keeping His commandments always. He says, verse 2, Know that today I do not speak with your children who have not known and who have not seen the chastening of the Lord your God, His greatness and His mighty hand and outstretched arm, His signs and His acts, Moses said, which He did in the midst of Egypt to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to all his land, what he did in the, the army of Egypt, to their horses and their chariots, again, the crossing of the Red Sea, how he made the waters of the Red Sea overflow them as he pursued you, and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day, what he did for you in the wilderness until you came to this place, the miracles, the manna, the water coming from the rock, again, all these things, again, this notice repeated emphasis, what he did for you what he did for you, what he did for you. Moses keeps repeating this again and again. Verse 6, what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the son of Reuben, how the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed up their households and their tents and all the substance that was in their possession in the midst of Israel. Again, number 16 is that account where they sought to rebel against the authority of the Lord that he had established and as a result, God judged them severely for that to demonstrate that he would not in a sense tolerate rebellion because ultimately it was just rebellion against him he says verse 7 but your eyes that is in contrast to the children he's referring to your eyes Moses said have seen every great act of the Lord which he did so verse 2 through 7 he's trying to say to them here in essence listen I'm not speaking these things today to your children who didn't see all these marvelous works of God throughout the time of the leaving of Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea and the miracles for the 38 to 40 years that you were in the wilderness and all these powerful ways that God worked. He says, look, your children didn't witness these things. But the people Moses is talking to, that current generation who were children and grew up watching all these things happen, he's saying... You are the ones, he says, verse 7, your eyes have seen every great act of the Lord which he did. He says, you're eyewitnesses. You've seen the hand of God. You've seen God's power. You've seen the ways that God has worked personally right in your midst. You know firsthand the power of God. You've seen it again and again in your life. And what he's saying is, so you're accountable for that. You're accountable for that. You know, the Bible tells us very clearly that we are accountable for what we know. To whom much is given, much is required. And God, again, He's a good, just, and a fair God. And therefore, because of that, there is a measure of accountability. And God says, once you know, you're accountable. Now, that's a wonderful thing and a sobering thing. That God shows us His power and God shows us His truth. But He says, but once you know, now you're accountable. And the more you know, the more you're accountable. That's why James warns and cautions those who have an inclination, maybe prematurely or in a way they shouldn't at a season in their life, to teach. He says, not many of you should presume to be teachers. He says, for you shall undergo a stricter judgment. 
In other words, God's saying, listen, realize, if you're going to take upon yourself the role of teaching the things of God to one person or to a hundred people or a thousand people, and you claim to know enough and know it well enough that you're able to communicate it to others, then God says, realize that you're going to undergo a stricter judgment than others. And that's a sobering reality that either tells us that if I'm going to teach the Word of God, I better be living it out. Or if I'm not living it out, I ought to stop. And I ought to realize I'm putting myself in jeopardy because God is going to hold to a greater degree of accountability. So God says to these people, here, listen, I'm not going to hold your children accountable for things they don't know they're children. But God says, but your eyes have seen every act which the Lord did. Verse 8, therefore, in light of that, he says again, you shall keep every commandment which I command you today. That you may be strong and go in and possess the land which you cross over to possess and that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers, to them and to their descendants, a land flowing with milk and honey. So again, God gives this exhortation that they should be, in a sense, more accountable because of what they had seen and experienced. They knew the power of God and therefore their hearts should be more responsive as a result of what they knew. Verse 10, for the land which you go to possess, he says, is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and watered it by foot as a vegetable garden. But the land which you cross over to possess is a land of hills and valleys which drinks water from the rain of heaven, a land which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning of the year to the very end. So God tells them, listen, the land that you're about to go into, the promised land, the land of Canaan, God says, listen, it's not like the land of Egypt where you came from. It's not going to be anything like that. He says, when you were in the land of Egypt, there, he said, you sowed your seed and you had to water it by foot as a vegetable garden. What he's talking about there is how in that land, you know, if you look at the landscape of Egypt, they utilize the Nile River for irrigation but typically it was by foot pedal irrigation the idea is by manual labor they would irrigate the the fields and so forth and the reason why is because the land of Egypt receives less than one inch per year of rain so it takes a lot of work to irrigate the land and God says look the land you're going into into Israel ultimately the land of Canaan he says, it's not like that land. The land you're about to possess is a land of hills and valleys. It would be different, which drinks water from the rain of heaven. God says it will be a different land because it's a land that I will bless with rain. I will bring rain upon it so that you don't have to work and labor and strive like with a foot pedal to irrigate your crops to survive and be fruitful. God said, I will make it fruitful because I will pour out my rain upon it. And he says, because it is a land for which the Lord your God cares. And the eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Boy, that's a great Bible verse there, verse 12, regarding the land of Israel. It's a land, the only land that we know of that the Bible says that God cares for and that his eye is on continuously. You know, that's a great verse there as a reminder to me. I went to Israel a few years ago. And of course, whenever you go to Israel, there's always that personal thought and then people say, well, that's really crazy, man. You're going to go over there and get killed. You know, you say, look, quite honestly, I feel safer in Israel than I do in America because the Bible says God's eye is on Israel and that God cares about the land of Israel. So I know he's probably more attentive 
to Israel than he is America. So I'm probably more dangerous and, in a sense, more in jeopardy here than I am there because it's a unique land that God has set aside for his unique chosen people and, and God speaks of this care that he has for it. You know, of course, all these things here are just, uh, as well as we said before, just you know, beautiful reminders as it's symbolically Egypt spoke of the old life and the world and the land of, uh, of Cain and the promised land flowing with milk and honey. That promised land speaks of the new promised life that they would go in and experience. And listen to what God's saying to them here. God is saying to them here, there's a difference between the old way and what I'm bringing you into. God says the old way, the old way of life, it was working hard and a lot of effort to pump out the water you needed to keep yourself sustained and keep yourself going. God says that the place that I want to bring you into is where you will receive by faith the outpouring of my blessing to satisfy and to quench your thirst. And boy, what a great comparison. You know, I mean, really, what do we want? Do, do we want a spiritual life where we got to work hard to pump out our own water and to make ourselves fruitful by striving and straining and, and doing everything we can and being worried, how are we going to make it and we're in desperation and drought? Is that the kind of life that we want? Or do we want the life that God wants for us, which is a life of living by faith, trusting in what God will do for us, and believing and knowing that we can receive by faith the outpouring of God's gracious rain from heaven where God makes us fruitful and God satisfies. You know, one way to live the spiritual life is to think, man, you got to work hard and pump it all out yourself. You got to work and pump and work and pump and, and you got to do what you got. And, and the other way is saying, no, no, no. The life in the spirit is a life of grace where I look to the Lord in faith and I trust Him to pour out rain from heaven of His Spirit to make my heart soft and to make me spiritually fruitful.